Welcome in to the Patuxent General. This is a very special week, episode 50. We have, in celebration, a taste of all your favorite specialties, a fun holiday mocktail, my mom's version of French meat pie, a submission by Piper V, some local folklore, and a continuing reading of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. But first, we would like to thank our Patreon subscribers. These fantastic individuals are the teeth, scales, wings, fire, breath, great claws, and piercing eyes of the dragon that is the Patuxent General, without whom we would have no magic at all. So thank you! If you would like to join our fantastic group, look for our site on Patreon.com or merely follow the links in the show notes. And thank you again! But until then, let's talk about Cranberry Punch. This mocktail is perfect to make ahead for the holiday season. It can be served over ice, just chilled, or you could use it as a mixer for your cocktail. It would be yummy with either rum or vodka, but today we're going to be doing the teetotaling version. For this recipe, you will need four cups raw cranberries, four cups water, eight whole cloves, two sticks of cinnamon, two cups of sugar, one half cup of lemon juice, and one cup of orange juice. Combine the cranberries, water, cloves, and cinnamon sticks in a saucepan. Bring to a boil. Lower the heat and simmer them until the cranberries break open, about 10 minutes. Then add the sugar, stirring to dissolve. Turn off the heat and strain. Then add the lemon juice and orange juice. Cool and serve chilled. The yield is about one and a half quarts. Enjoy. This next story was from the University of Rhode Island 1956 Supernatural Folklore of Rhode Island by Idola Jeanne Borghese. Many years ago, a peddler knocked at the door of a lonely farmhouse at the foot of Mount Tom. When the farmer opened the door, the peddler offered to sharpen all the knives in the house in return for his supper and a night's lodging. After having supper with the farmer and his daughter, the peddler started to work on the knives while the farmer sat watching him. Soon the daughter went upstairs to bed, but when she heard a commotion downstairs, she returned to find her father patting the hearthstones back into place. The room showed evidence of a fight, and the peddler had disappeared, but his pack remained on the floor, and a pile of silver lay on the table. The girl quickly understood and began to rummage through the pack in search of trinkets. Her father, fearing that she may give him away, burned out the phone. There were no indications that a ghost lurked near the old farmhouse until long after the father and daughter had died, and nothing remained of the abandoned house except the stone chimney and fallen timbers. One day, while playing hide-and-seek about the old chimney, neighborhood children heard moaning sounds that seemed to come from beneath the stones at the base of the chimney. The frightened children fled home and told their parents. A neighborhood group, armed with picks and shovels, went to the ruin and dug up the old hearth to find the bones of the vanished peddler. And this story was submitted to us by Piper V. Pasta. Joe was seven years old. He had what he thought was a good life. Kids at school didn't bug him too much. His mom was artistic and easy to get along with. And even his teachers weren't that bad. But there was one thing he just couldn't tolerate. 
his mother's pasta obsession. Over the years, she had gone off the edge every day. Pasta, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Oh, sure, it was always different. Noodle cake, ramen, spaghetti, lasagna, stuffed shells, even rice pilaf. But every day? Joe bided his time, but eventually... He had all he could stand, and he couldn't stand no more. He planned ahead. He knew that he had 45 minutes until his mother came home. She had watched him reach home safely and would continue her commute. That gave him time. He had found a recipe online and planned to enact the brew alone. The website was questionable at best. The address blinked on and off for some reason. It suggested that anything would be dissolved by this brew, and true to form, when Joe's mother came home, she saw, to her horror, empty boxes all over the floor, steam-covered windows, and her child standing on a chair pulled up to the store. Joe has her largest pot full with a vile green concoction. His eyes glazed over. He laughs (laughs) gently and says the names as he pours them in. Fusilli, manicotti, spaghetti and penne, tortellini, fettuccine, elbows and egg, be they semolina, flour or corn, no matter their content, I will not mourn the loss of these pastas not to return. She heard his words and looked into his eyes, as disturbed and fixated as they were, and lost her mind. She felt sure, because when she looked into his eyes, he smiled, but worse, A tentacle came out of the goo. What was he feeding? I was talking with my mom about French meat pie from last week's episode. Thank you, Grandmother Teresa. But my mom had two shiny scents to put in, and I agree. And since she went to all the trouble to write it out in her own hand, let's listen and add to the pie palooza my mom's French meat pie. For this recipe, you will need For the crust, 4 cups of flour, 1 tablespoon sugar, 2 teaspoons salt Mix together and then sift Add the 1 and 3 quarter cup of shortening, work in well, in a separate bowl 1 half cup water, 1 tablespoon white vinegar, and 1 egg Beat together and add to the shortening mixture, work ingredients together well If too wet, add a little bit of flour at a time Cut in half and form into two balls and refrigerate for 15 minutes. For the filling, you will need one pound ground pork, one pound ground beef, two medium potatoes boiled and mashed, one teaspoon cinnamon, salt and pepper to taste, two tablespoons butter, one onion diced. Saute the onions in the butter and spices. Saute the onions in butter. Add the spices to the meat and mix them well. Stir until almost done. Saute off the juice. Keep aside for the gravy if that's how you fly. And add the potatoes and put them in the pie shell and bake. 425 degrees or until brown about 50 minutes. And enjoy! I want to tell you about my friend Mike and his Electromagnetic Pinball Museum and Restoration Arcade. It's an all-inclusive place to relax and share anything related to modern pinball, EM pinball, and arcade games. A group of pinball and arcade fans with an addiction to games of all kinds and Lego too. 
$10 gets you free play on pinball and arcade games all day. You can find them at 881 Main Street, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or online at www.electromagneticpinballmuseum.com. House in the Corner series, a continuing reading of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. But they didn't devote the whole evening to music. After a while, they played at forfeits, for it is good to be children sometimes, and never better than at Christmas, when its mighty founder was a child himself. Oh, stop, there was first a game of Blind Man's Bluff. Of course there was. And I no more believe Topper was really blind than I believe he had eyes in his boots. My opinion is, it was a thing done between him and Scrooge's nephew, and that the ghost of Christmas present knew it. The way he went after that plump sister in the lace tucker was an outrage on the credulity of human nature. Knocking down fire irons, tumbling over chairs, bumping against the piano, smothering himself among the curtains. Wherever she went, there was he. He always knew where the plump sister was. He couldn't catch anyone else. If you had fallen up against him, as some of them did, on purpose, he would have made a feign at endeavoring to seize you, which would have been an affront to your understanding, and would instantly have sidled off in the direction of the plump sister. She'd often cried out that it wasn't fair, and it really was not. And when at last he caught her, when in spite of all of her silken rustlings, all her rapid flutterings passed him, he got her into a corner whence there was no escape. Then his conduct was most execrable, for his pretending not to know her, his pretending it was necessary to touch her headdress, and further to assure himself of her identity by pressing a certain ring upon her finger and a certain chain about her neck, was vile, monstrous. No doubt she told him her opinion of it. When another blind man being in the office, they were so very confidential together behind the curtains. Scrooge's niece was not one of the blind man's bluff party, but was made comfortable with a large chair and footstool in a snug corner where the ghost and Scrooge were close behind her. But she joined in the forfeits and loved her love to admiration with all the letters of the alphabet. Likewise, in the game of how, when, and where, she was very great, and to the secret joy of Scrooge's nephew, beat her sisters hollow. Though they were sharp girls, too, as Topper could have told you. There might have been twenty people there, young and old, but they all played, and so did Scrooge for wholly forgetting in the interest he had in what was going on, that his voice made no sound in their ears. He sometimes came out with his guess quite loud, and very often guessed right too. For the sharpest needle, best Whitechapel warranted not to cut in the eye was not sharper than Scrooge. Blunt as he took it in his head to be, the ghost was greatly pleased to find him in this mood, and looked upon him with such favor that he begged like a boy to be allowed to stay until the guest departed. But this, the spirit said, could not be done. Here is a new game, said Scrooge. One half hour, spirit, only one. It was a game called Yes and No, where Scrooge's nephew had to think of something, and the rest must find out what. He only answering to their questions yes or no, as the case was. The brisk fire of questioning to which he was exposed excited from him what he was thinking of an animal, a live animal, a rather disagreeable animal, a savage animal, an animal that growled and grunted sometimes, and talked sometimes, and lived in London, and walked about the streets, and wasn't made a show of, and wasn't led by anybody, 
and didn't live in a menagerie and was never killed in a market and was not a horse or an ass or a cow or a bull or a tiger or a dog or a pig or a cat or a bear. At every fresh question that was put to him, the nephew burst into a fresh roar of laughter and was so inexpressibly tickled that he was obliged to get up off the sofa and stamp. At last, the plump sister, falling into a similar state, cried out, I found it out. I know what it is, Fred. I know what it is. What is it? said Fred. It's your Uncle Scrooge. Which certainly it was. Admiration was the universal sentiment, though some objected to the reply, Is it a bear? ought to have been yes. Inasmuch as an answer in the negative was sufficient to have diverted their thoughts from Mr. Scrooge, supposing that they had never had any tendency that way. He has given us plenty of merriment, I am sure, said Fred, and it would be ungrateful not to drink to his health. Here is a glass of mulled wine ready at our hand at the moment, and I say, Uncle Scrooge. Well, Uncle Scrooge, they cried. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to the old man, wherever he is, said Scrooge's nephew. He wouldn't take it from me, but he may have it nonetheless. Uncle Scrooge. Uncle Scrooge had imperceptibly become so gay and light of heart that he would have pledged the unconscious company in return and thanked them in an audible speech if the ghost had given him time. But the whole scene passed off in the breath of the last words spoken by his nephew, and he and the spirit were again upon their travels. Much they saw and far they went, and many homes they visited, but always with a happy end. The spirits stood beside sick beds, and they were cheerful, on foreign lands, and they were close to home, by struggling men, and they were patient in their greater hope, by poverty, and it was rich, in the almshouse, hospital, and jail, in misery's every refuge, where vain man and his little brief authority has not made fast the door and barred the spirit out. He left his blessing and taught Scrooge his precepts, it was a long night, if it were only a night. But Scrooge had his doubts of this, because the Christmas holidays appeared to be condensed into one space of time as they passed together. It seemed strange, too, that while Scrooge remained unaltered in his outward form, the ghost grew older, clearly older. Scrooge had observed this change, but never spoke of it, until they left a children's twelfth night party, when, looking at the spirit as they stood together in an open place, he noticed that its hair was gray. Are spirits' lives so short? asked Scrooge. My life upon this globe is very brief, replied the ghost. It ends tonight. Tonight, said Scrooge. Tonight at midnight. Hark, the time is drawing near. The chimes were ringing at three quarters past eleven at that moment. Forgive me if I'm not justified in what I ask, said Scrooge, looking intently at the spirit's robes. But I see something strange, and not belonging to yourself, protruding from your skirts. Is that a foot or, or a claw? It might be a claw, for all the flesh there is upon it, was the spirit's sorrowful reply. Look here. From the foldings of its robe, it brought two children, wretched, abject, frightful, hideous, miserable. They knelt down at its feet and clung on the outside of its garment. Oh, man, look there. Look. Look down there, exclaimed the ghost. They were a boy and girl, yellow, meager, ragged, scowling, and wolfish, but prostrate, too, in their humility. 
where graceful youth should have filled their features out and touched them with its freshest tints, a stale and shriveled hand like that of age had pinched and twisted them and pulled them into shreds. Where angels might have sat enthroned, devils lurked and glared out menacing. No change, no degradation, no perversion of humanity in any grade, though all the mysteries of wonders and creation has monsters half so horrible and dread. Scrooge started back, appalled. Having them shown to him in this way, he tried to say they were fine children, but the words choked themselves, rather than be parties to a lie of such enormous magnitude. Spirit, are they yours? Scrooge could say no more. They are man's, said the spirit, looking down upon them. And they cling to me, appealing from their fathers. This boy is ignorance. This girl is want. Beware them both, and all of their degree, but most of all beware this boy. For upon his brow I see that written which is doom, unless the writing be erased. Deny it, cried the spirit, stretching out his hand towards the city. Slander those who tell it to you. Admit it for your factious purposes, and make it worse, and bide the end. Have they no refuge or resource, cried Scrooge? Are there no prisons, said the spirit, turning on him for the last time with his own words. Are there no workhouses? The bell struck twelve. Scrooge looked about him for the ghost and saw it not. And as the last stroke ceased to vibrate, he remembered the prediction of old Jacob Marley. And lifting up his eyes, beheld a solemn phantom, draped and hooded, coming like a mist along the ground toward him. Thank you once again for joining us here today at the PG. If you'd like to contact us with any questions about any stories or recipes or perhaps have a local ghost story, our email is jess at patuxetgeneral.com. This week, we'll be moving up the street to our new location at the Edgewood Congregational Church, 1788 Broad Street, Cranston, Rhode Island, 02905, every Saturday from 9 until 1 o'clock p.m. I'll see you there for sure. But after that, I'll meet you right back here next time at the Patuxet General. A Something for Posterity production, pre-recorded in Patuxet.